Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that, first and foremost, Lord, for giving us the mothers that, you've, that you gave us and that they did the best that they could, and that was more than enough. And so now we pray that as we open up your word, as we open up what has been true for thousands of years, we pray that you would give us fresh light and fresh insight into the text that we have probably read a hundred times. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning um, is a continuation of a sermon that we started two weeks ago when I was last up here. Two weeks ago, we talked about conflict and how as a Christian and as a believer and as a follower of Jesus, we must interact with conflict and how to kind of navigate through the conflicts in our lives. But a part of what we need to also look at is the other side of conflict isn't just telling somebody, hey, you've done something that has hurt me, but it's now on the other side of it is now when you are the one who has done the offending. So it's always easy for us to actually go to someone who has hurt us or to point to the offender, to the person that has you know, hurt us, betrayed us. But it's not always easy to be the person that has betrayed or hurt others, and it's not always easy to forgive. How many of you have ever heard people say, you know, I love Jesus, I love God, but it's religion that I have a problem with? How many have we heard that? I hear that at least five times a week when I'm at the hospital, at least five times. And it's interesting because everything in our lives is about rules, right? When we when we go to school, we all have rules. From the moment we go to preschool, there's always those rules on the wall that say what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. When you go to work, there are rules at work and your job, and if you don't follow them, you can lose your job. There are rules sometimes in our relationships, right? Like you cannot cross that line. So there's rules everywhere, but what I hear people saying when they say, I love Jesus, I love God, there's just too many rules, too many regulations at church. What I really hear them saying is, I want a faith that is going to give me freedom and not oppress me. What I also hear people saying and in, in talking to them a little longer is that they have been hurt by someone in the church and bad things aren't supposed to happen in churches, right? That's, that's the hope anyway. And so it's funny for me because when I hear about people talking about all these rules and all these regulations, I, I, I kind of have this internal laugh because what I really want to say to them is if you have problems with rules and regulations, I mean, that's not even like, that's the minimal part, right? Like, you know, rules and regulations are self-imposed. But the reason that Christianity is hard and difficult isn't because of the rules and regulations. It's because of what God requires of us, which is forgiveness. You know, we talk about all of the things, you know, one of the things that people, when they find out that they hear, when they find out that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, they always, they always start with one of two or three things. They say, oh, you guys are the ones that don't drink coffee, or you guys are the ones that are vegetarian, or you guys are the ones that don't dance, to, to which I always reply, I didn't know we needed to have rhythm to be Christian. Oh, come on. You gotta... <laughs> Someone this week told me, your jokes aren't that funny. I'm like, so I'm a pastor. <laughs> Thank you. Goodness. Humility. <laughs> but the truth is, all of this to say, 
that what's really difficult about being a follower of Jesus isn't the, the rules that we think we have to follow, but rather what Jesus calls of us, and that is to learn the art of forgiving those who have hurt us. Forgiveness, giving it and asking for it, are some of the most difficult things that we can experience as human beings. So I want to look at Scripture and see what it tells us about forgiveness. Jesus, in talking to tons of people, Jesus says this, I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, or in the, in the Greek, it uses words like, you person without sense. Like, that's, it's like really bad. It sounds worse. Like, every once in a while, because growing up, we used to use the word fool a lot. Like, fool, like, but it was in a loving, endearing way. That's not what the Bible is like, you without sense. Like, you, it's almost like calling someone, like, a moron with, like, this, just this hate in your heart towards them. So Jesus says, if you call someone, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So you see what happens is the, the, the people in the first century, the religious people, they had like 663 or 68 laws that they had to follow. And they felt like as long as we didn't break any of these laws, we would be good. Well, first of all, it's impossible to bat a thousand when you have that many laws, okay? Second of all, one of the laws that kind of could, would keep coming up is that you shall not murder. I believe that's the sixth commandment. And so what we find is that in the first century, people were saying like, well, I'm not killing anyone. I'm not murdering anyone. So I'm a pretty good person. But then Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, look, it's not enough to just not physically kill someone. But Jesus makes the point that just being angry at someone and how you filter that out, how you express that anger towards someone, that that has immense and huge implications. Jesus is making a point. He says, look, if you are out there and you're angry with these people and you are calling them this, that, and the other thing, if you are calling them fool, if you are calling them moron, if you are doing these things, you are doing the same thing as though you were physically murdering someone. So you can see why people had a problem with Jesus. Because we will all agree that we shouldn't call people names. We agree with that. But Jesus says to do that isn't just, oh, well, we're human. But for Jesus, is that, that's a deeper symptom of the hardness of your heart. Jesus says, look, if you can't treat each other kindly, if you can't love one another, you will be liable to the hell of fire. And what Jesus is saying is, look, if you can't get along with your Jewish brothers and sisters, with you believers of God, if you can't get along with each other here, what makes you think that you are going to be able to get along with them in heaven? So the hellfire isn't the judgment for you being a mean person. It's you will hate it in heaven because it's going to be love, hugs, and kisses. And so if you don't want that now, you don't want to go to eternity with God. And so what Jesus was trying to invite his listeners to do is to live as though heaven was now. It's about learning to live heavenly in the now. There's an expression that says live as though, live then as now. And what I mean by that is if we think about heaven as this perfect, magical, ethereal place where everything will be great, where we will all get along, then we should take that understanding and bring it into our present as though that future is now. 
Now, some of you may be saying, oh, yeah, but you don't know the stuff that people have done to me. People do stuff to us all the time, and they're going to continue to. But if you are going to live as though heaven is now, and I'm not, look, this is not new age philosophy, okay? I'm not saying that God is with, that you are all little gods and this divine spark and everybody should be hippies and love one another. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we must learn to live heavenly in this world of hellish characters. In Jesus' prayer, in the, in the Lord's prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus never qualified that by saying, in the future when I return. <laughs> Instead, Jesus was proclaiming that the kingdom of God is present in and around us. And that if that is true, then we can learn to live within this kingdom, what, what Christians call kingdom life, where we no longer live by the rules of the world, where the world will tell you, you can be as angry as you want with someone and say the worst of things. And listen, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm, I'm a work in progress too. But the world will tell you, you can say and do whatever you want, especially if it's going to hurt the person that hurt you first. That's what the world says. But the world, the way God intends it, is not that you get to say whatever you want to. All right? It's not that you get to act how you want to towards people and be mean and unkind, and it's okay because you're angry. And God's world is, okay, you're angry, but it doesn't give you the right to say and do all of these things that's on your heart. God doesn't have a First Amendment in the way he wrote the world. You don't have freedom of speech in God's world. What I mean by that is not a political statement. It's that God doesn't give you permission to lash out at people just because you're angry at them. Instead, Jesus says, be careful how you filter your anger. The, the, two weeks ago, it says, be angry, but do not sin. And so Jesus is reaching into the deeper parts of our souls and saying, you may never actually kill a person, but your anger towards them and how that's filtered out can be the very same as killing someone. So Jesus continues. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister. Yeah, and then I pause right there for a moment. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, then you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Which means, if you are the one that said or did something to hurt someone else, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go to your brother or sister. So let me put it this way. If this was written today, and I, I tried hard to see how the best way to put this would be, but if this was written today, it might go something like this. If you go to church on Sabbath and you are wearing your Sabbath best, maybe you bought a new dress or a really nice tie, maybe you bought a new purse that you've been wanting to use, or you bought a brand new suit. In other words, if you went to church and you looked the very best that you can and as sinless as possible, but in walking into church, you remembered that you said something to someone that hurt them or somebody told you, hey, that thing you said was actually really hurtful towards that person. 
So if you come to church and you are shaking hands with the greeter and something about the way the greeter's hair is reminds you of somebody that you hurt, I don't know. Then go to that brother or sister and be reconciled to them. In other words, ask for forgiveness. Even if, now listen to me, even if that Sabbath is your turn to teach the lesson or to be a greeter or to prepare for potluck or even if you are the one who is going to preach, if you remember that you have done something to hurt someone or offend someone, then Jesus gives you the mandate to leave and go and ask for forgiveness. Now, if... There is, if there were a Pharisee among us, they would respond this way. No. If you have responsibility at the church, then you must fulfill that first, and then after church, you can go and ask for forgiveness. That's what would make sense to us, right? Like, yeah, if you're going to preach, you can't leave the church and go ask for forgiveness. The church wouldn't have that. But the reality is, that's exactly what Jesus tells us. Some of you are reacting against this right now, like, oh, no, you can never leave church. But what good is preaching if the inner nature of yourself is hurting other people? So Jesus says, look, you're bringing your altar to the church. I mean, your gift to the church. It's like a sacrifice. You're offering your sacrifice to Jesus at the church. In the, old, in the first century, they would bring their offering, maybe a dove or something, a pigeon, and they would offer it as a sacrifice in a way of showing God, look, God, I am sorry for all the sins that I have committed on a, this week, and I'm sorry, and I'm offering this to you here. Take this as acceptable offering. What was normal to do? Jesus says, look, whatever. Anybody can buy a pigeon because back then, do you guys remember the story of Jesus coming to the temple and overturning the money changers? Basically what was happening is, pretend that there was people on our front, on our front sidewalk and, and a part of coming to church is that you had to offer some sort of pigeon, right? To kind of show how remorseful you are. But the thing is, you didn't really want to come from 30 miles away with a pigeon in your car because it would make your car smell bad. So you would just buy one before coming into church. And here, well, this will be good enough. We'll offer this. And so Jesus was like, you missed the point. That's not what, what this sacrifice is about. He says, if you truly want to honor me, if you truly want to glorify me and worship me, go and reconcile with those whom you have hurt. Then come and offer that gift because then that gift is meaningful. I remember a time when, um, and this wasn't in my notes, but I kind of feel compelled to share this. Um, I remember... Um, um, early on, I had, I had just been a certain kind of way. I had been stressed out. There was things going on. And I remember that I wasn't the kindest of, of people um, to, to the kids. And I was short, and I would get angry, and I'd clean up your room, and oh, you know, all that kind of stuff that dads do, as we saw in the video, right? We don't have mom goggles in real life. And I remember it was a Sabbath when they were all coming to church. And I remember it was tense. And it was just like, ah. And, you know, as a pastor, you have to come up here and preach on a good day and on a bad day, if you know what I mean. You have to perform. And I remember just it was anxiety and sickness in my stomach. And I was like, I can't go up there and preach while the people that I have hurt are sitting in the front pew. Because it's pointless. 
Because you guys don't know what I'm like at home. <laughs> you know, you guys just see this guy. But they did. And so I remember calling them into the office. They were sitting there. And I had to just kind of open up and say, I'm sorry. Because I know that what I'm preaching and what I might be living at times, they don't coexist. And it was hard. And there was tears. And I hated it. And I hate being humble. I hate being humbled. But yet what we find is that when we find reconciliation in our relationships, that when we come and worship God, we have even more to worship because we experience what grace and goodness does. No one likes to ask for forgiveness, right? And especially if you keep making the same mistake, sometimes the forgiveness doesn't feel like, it, like it's sticking. <laughs> so Jesus says, look, before you put on a show at church, because listen, can I just be honest with you? That's what you all do, including myself. We put on these fronts and these veneers when we come to church because if people saw what we were really like, then they might judge us. So we put on fronts. And Jesus says, don't. Why do you even do that? Why do you even do that? Church isn't a place for sinless people to gather. Church is a place for sinners and people who are sick to worship the God that still sees us as worthy and valuable. So, Jesus says, go and reconcile, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus wants a gift that is offered with a heart that is full with the right intentions and motivations, not with selfish motivations. So, really quickly, because we're running out of time, I want to go over some practical things um, this is not something I came up with. So this is someone much wiser, much more intelligent than me that came up with these things just to kind of let you know. All right? This is a person with a PhD. Bad apologies or fake apologies. If you are the one who has offended someone and you know it or they actually told you like, hey, when you said this, it really hurt my feelings. If you are that person, which we all are at some point in our lives, these are not the apologies that you want to give. An expedient apology. Now, this, this is when you say, okay, I'm sorry. You know, someone says, hey, you came and you did this and it hurt, and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so, so sorry. Like, it may make you feel better that you said those words, but if all you're saying is, oh, I'm so sorry, in hopes to move on from that conversation, that's not a real apology, all right? If your motivation is just to get out of that uncomfortable and painful conversation, so you say sorry to get out of it, that's not a real apology, also, a compelled apology. It's empty because you offer it without understanding the full effect of what you did. So, practical or, or everyday thing. Husband and wife are arguing. And the husband, as it always is, says something hurtful. And the wife's like, are you go aren't you going to apologize? Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. I, I don't know. Women, you're not like that. that. Men do that too. Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. <laughs> that doesn't count if you're like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Just because you're saying the words doesn't mean that it counts. Here's another one. A delayed or a surrogate apology. One time when I was a kid, I was playing basketball in my neighbor's yard. And um, we were playing basketball as a small kind of, you know, little driveway, right? They're not that big. And I remember my friend went up for a shot, and I came up, and I jumped, and I swatted the ball, rejected it. I don't know what they call it these days. Um, but I stopped him. 
And I went as hard as I could, right? Because that's what guys do. We try to show our manness by doing things like loud and, you know, rough. And I, and I, hit the, I, I blocked the ball as hard as I could. The problem is there was a garage door with the little windows on them, and it just it broke. So my, my proud moment turned into a humiliating and humbling moment. But my parents didn't go over there and offer an apology. That's a surrogate apology. I had to work off the $100 that it cost to replace that little section of window. A surrogate apology when a mom goes to offer, you know, sorry to another family for what their son or daughter did. That doesn't count. A delayed apology. Oh, I'm sorry about the time that I did that. Sorry, no hard feelings. Those apologies do not count. They may feel to the person who's making the, the, asking the forgiveness, it may feel like you're doing what you're supposed to do, but if you are doing what you feel like you are supposed to do, then it's wrong. If you're doing something out of obligation, it's wrong. So, I've given you bad apologies. I want to give you maybe some good apologies. A good, real apology is when you acknowledge the harm that you have done without justifying it. Hey, I know I was a big jerk to you, but I was hungry. I'm guilty of that one sometimes. You know, men turn into Danny DeVito on that commercial, you know, when you don't have your, your food, you turn into this crazy guy, or Joe Pesci, whichever one. So just because you were hungry, or tired, or grumpy, or you, or you had a bad day, or somebody said something mean to you, it never gives you the right to treat someone else badly. Nothing gives you the right, if you call yourself a follower of Christ. Now, if you don't, then the world says, that's okay, then that's okay. But in God's world, in God's economy, it's never okay to lash out at someone. So number one, acknowledge what you did without justifying it. It's not, I'm sorry, but I was hungry, tired, or irritated. Because that minimizes the apology. It, it doesn't count if you're making an excuse as to why you did it. Instead is, I am sorry I was mean to you and I said those words. And in the future, I will try not to do it by having a Snickers bar in my backpack at all times, you know, something like that. Never but, never insert a but, always, and I will work on it by doing this. So, the second part of a, of a, of a good apology. Acceptance of responsibility. You know you did it. Don't make excuses. Say, I am guilty. I did it. I saw, she saw you do it. He saw you do it. You did it. You can't get out of it. Number three, a sincere expression of regret or remorse. You know when someone that has hurt you really regrets doing what they did. And so when you show, I am so sorry, a part of the way that you show this remorse and regret is by working hard on a daily basis to not do that thing again. So to really show that you mean it, it's not about, well, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do except live one day at a time showing the person you hurt that you will do everything you can so that you don't do that again. And then the fourth is assurance of safety for the sake of the future of the relationship. In essence, these are the safeguards I'm going to put in place so that that doesn't happen again. 
And sometimes that requires that the person that you have hurt gets to tell you, kind of gets to give you some input. Because they're the ones that you hurt. So they get to have input in how you get to move forward. Because if they forgive you, they're, they're doing you a favor. If you love that person, so they get to say, so maybe next time we should do this, this, and this if we feel ourselves going down this path. So if you're truly asking for forgiveness, you're not going to get defensive and be like, oh, well, so you don't trust me? No. If you're the one that is truly asking for forgiveness, then you can be open to the input that they are giving. And number five, sometimes apologies require explanations on the part of the injured party. If you're truly repentant and remorseful, and if you're asking for forgiveness, that means that you, ha- you have to be open to listening to how you hurt that person. And that, my friends, can actually be one of the most painful aspects of an apology. Because then you have to listen to what you did and how it hurt the person that you loved. This is a real apology. So when Jesus is talking about, look, if, if you're coming to church and it just looks like you're doing all the right things and you're singing the right songs and you're dressed the right way and your car is washed, because that's what good Adventists do on the Friday, you know, before church, you know, we get our cars washed. And if everything looks great and you have your tithe envelope and you're putting it in the offering plate and maybe you, you looked and you grabbed the biggest Bible you own because apparently the bigger the Bible, the holier you are, at least, you know, I've seen that happen before. Just because you're doing all the things that look right doesn't mean that your inward heart is at peace with God. So Jesus says, who cares if all that's in place? What I care about is where your relationships with are. And if you have offended and hurt someone, go and take care of that. Reconcile. Because that is what's important to God. And if you, and if, and if you don't believe me, The central story of your faith and of my faith is that God took on the form of a human in the person of Jesus and God laid down his life to forgive you and to bridge the gap that sin creates in your life. God paid the ultimate price of sacrificing his son so that you and him would be reconciled. He took on the injury. He took on the weight of of the penalty so that not only you wouldn't have to but you would also be reconciled to the author of life the giver of life so that you then could experience the fullness and the abundance of life forgiveness is at the center of what it means to be a christian I'm always weary of the people who impose all these rules and regulations because in my mind the first thing that comes up to mind is what are they hiding Why are they hiding behind the rules and regulations? You see, because if we can focus on the rules and on the regulations, then we don't have to worry about forgiveness. So I would say, don't have rules and regulations unless you're willing to ask for forgiveness when you've hurt others and that you then are open to forgiving those who have hurt you. One more verse. Be on your guard. If another disciple, and here we could probably put believer sins against sins you must rebuke the offender so remember Matthew 18 if someone does something against you then go and talk to him 
And if there is repentance, you must forgive. So if they say, man, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that again, right? Repentance, the metanoia in the Greek is to turn away from what you've been doing, right? So to repent isn't to say sorry, it's to say I will turn from the way I was doing things and I will now do it this way, okay? That's great marriage advice for some of you as well. So if there is repentance, you must forgive. Jesus doesn't say think about forgiving or it would be a good idea, but it's like, look, if they repent, you must forgive. And if that same person sins against you seven times a day and turn back, turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. And look at what the apostle said. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. Because that's hard. Because if you keep getting hurt, instead of saying like, oh, that's okay, I love you. No, you like, you're like, man, get out of here. Like, I'm gonna, the, the more that somebody hurts you, the more distance that is placed between you. That's what we do when we sin. We place more distance between ourselves and God, and God keeps forgiving you, so he keeps coming back. We distance ourselves through sin, and Jesus keeps coming back. And so Jesus says, if you've experienced that, then when somebody sins against you, then you must forgive them. On another Sabbath and another time, we'll talk about reconciliation you must always forgive, but to forget may be unhealthy and put you in a bad situation. But I can't talk about that now because that's another 30-minute sermon. So forgiveness, always. But what happens after you forgive is a whole other conversation. So I have one more Bible verse, I believe. Jesus says, there are, um, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Again, I'm not saying that you have to stand up in front of church and confess to all of us your deepest, darkest secrets. What it means is, if I have offended Kurt, then I need to go to Kurt and confess to him, hey, I, I acknowledge that I have done this, and I'm sorry. And this is what I will do to make sure that this doesn't happen again so this morning i challenge you don't always be looking or pointing your finger at the people who have hurt you but stop and think when have i hurt someone and when you know you have done that go to them make amends ask for forgiveness and I guarantee you that not only will your spiritual life grow, but your relationships will begin to flourish. Amen.